The name of this podcast is called The War on Kids by Kara H. Drennan. Continuing from page 14. Under Florida law, Terrence faced anywhere from five years to life imprisonment. The state asked for a 45-year sentence, 30 years for the armed burglary count, and 15 years for the attempted robbery count. Terrence's lawyer requested a five-year minimum sentence, and the Florida Department of Corrections recommended that Terrence received even less prison time, four years maximum. The judge imposed life without parole before announcing the sentence. The judge made the following statement. Mr. Graham, as I look back on your case, yours is really candidly a sad situation. You had, as far as I could tell, you had quite a family structure. You had a lot of people who wanted to try and help you get your life turned around, including the court system. And you had a judge who took the step to try to give you direction through his probation order to give you a chance to get back onto track. And I don't know why it is that you threw your life away. I don't know why, but you did. And that is what is so sad about this today is that you have actually been given the chance to get through this. The original charge, which was a very serious charge to begin with, the attempted robbery with a weapon was a very serious charge. And I don't understand why you will be given such a great opportunity to do something with your life and why you would throw it away. The only thing that I could rationalize is that you decided that this is how you were going to lead your life and that there's nothing that we could do for you. And as the state pointed out, that this is an escalating pattern of criminal conduct on your part that we can't help you any further. We can't do anything to deter you. This is the way you're going to lead your life. And I don't know why you're going to. You made that decision. I have no idea. But evidently, this is what you decided to do. So then it becomes a focus. If I can't do anything to help you, if I can't do anything to get you back on the right path, then I have to start focusing on the community and trying to protect the community from your actions. And unfortunately, that is where we are today, is I don't see where I could do anything to help you any further. You've evidently decided this is the direction you're going to take in life, and it's unfortunate that you made that choice. I have reviewed the statute. I don't see any further juvenile sanctions will be appropriate. I don't see where any youthful offender sanctions will be appropriate. Given your escalating pattern of criminal conduct, it is apparent to the court that you have decided that this is the way you're going to live your life and that the only thing I could do now is to try and protect the community from your actions. Nothing in the judge's decision reflected Terrence's youth, the mitigation circumstances of his childhood, or the various ways in which the state of Florida had failed him as a minor. The judge failed to account for the fact that Terrence had grown up in abject poverty with two crack-addicted parents, or the fact that Terrence had been physically and verbally abused from the time he was a toddler. The judge made no mention of the fact that the Florida Department of Children and Families have files on incidents relating to Terrence's mother and her children dating back to when Terrence was only three years old, including questions whether Terrence and his brother should be removed from the home because there was no food. Apparently, none of this history made it to the judge's decision-making process. It certainly was not mentioned as sentencing. Terrence was an adult in the eyes of the law, and the law permitted a life without parole sentence. At the age of 17, he was sentenced to die in prison. Like Terrence Graham and Control Jackson, more than 200,000 juveniles are charged in adult criminal court each year. Their experiences in the adult criminal court system will be inconceivable to those Americans who invented the juvenile court at the turn of the 20th century. 
To begin, it is very easy and common for children today to be removed from the juvenile court and charged as adults. Many states set no minimum age at which a child can be removed from juvenile court. And as a result, children as young as six in some states can be transferred out of juvenile court into adult court without any ju judicial oversight. Once in adult court, a juvenile defendant enjoys the right to counsel as other defendants, but there is no guarantee that this attorney will be experienced in representing juveniles. Precisely because they are young, juvenile defendants are less equipped to assist in their own representation. They are less capable of considering the long-term consequences associated with a plea bargain or sentence. They are more susceptible to coercion by the state. If convicted, children can be jailed with adult inmates, even in dormitory-style arrangements. The practice continues despite the fact that Congress had engaged legislation advising of the dire risk of sexual and physical assault, and despite the research demonstrating that juveniles housed in adult prisons are exponentially more likely to commit suicide. The name of this podcast is called Read a Book, and we're reading The War on Kids, How American Juvenile Justice Lost Its Way by Kyra H. Drennan, Chapter 1. Part A, The Arc of American Juvenile Justice First established in Illinois in 1899, juvenile justice is now a well-established feature of our criminal justice system. Every jurisdiction in the country has separate juvenile justice system. Prompted by progressive era reformers, the early juvenile court was attentive to the differences between adults and children and emphasized age-appropriate punishment and treatment for juvenile offenders. As described by Professor Aaron Kupchik, an expert on juvenile justice, founders of the juvenile justice system believed that juveniles who misbehaved were products of pathological environments rather than instinctively evil. The target of the juvenile justice system was deprivation, not the deprivation, of delinquent youth. The court's mission was to re-socialize youth and provide them with the necessary tools for adopting a moral lifestyle. Over time, several features emerged as defining attributes of the juvenile justice system. 1. A degree of informality relative to criminal court proceedings. 2. Great discretion afforded to the judge who was able to tailor the intervention to the particular juvenile in each case. And 3. A fundamental shared belief that childhood is a period of dependency and risk where the state had a role to play for a child in jeopardy. Today, developed countries around the world have installed juvenile justice system model after the American system. Vanderbilt professor of law Terry Maroney has described three primary phases in the development of American juvenile justice prior to the immediate era that we are entering. The first phase already discussed was prompted by the reha rehabilitative idea of the late 19th century, and it expressed optimism about the juvenile's capacity for change and society's obligation to support that change. The Supreme Court explained this first phase in the following way. The child essentially good, as early reformers saw it, was to made to feel that he is object of state's care and solicitude, not that he was under arrest or on trial. The rules of criminal procedure was therefore altogether inapplicable. The apparent rigidities, technicalities, and harshness which they observed in both substantive and procedural criminal law were therefore to be discarded. The idea of crime and punishment was to be abandoned. While the intentions of early juvenile justice advocates may have been noble, in practice, juvenile courts did not always live up to the paternalistic aims. 
By the middle of the 20th century, juvenile advocates argued that the flexibility of the juvenile court, while born of a caretaking concept, was resulting in arbitrary outcomes for juveniles and the denial of basic procedural rights familiar to American law. In 1966, the Supreme Court confronted these claims in Kent v. United States. The case entered, centered on Morris Kent Jr., who first entered Washington, D.C.'s juvenile justice system at age 14. At that time, Kent was arrested for breaking into homes and for attempted purse snatching. He was placed on probation and released to his mother's custody. Two years later, during his probation period, D.C. police identified Kent as the primary suspect in burglary and rape case. Police apprehended Kent, took him to custody, interrogated him, and detained him for a week. Ultimately, with no hearing and over the objection of counsel retained by Kent's mother, the juvenile court judge transferred Kent's case to adult criminal court. He was ultimately found guilty and sentenced to serve between 30 and 90 years.